Hello and welcome okay. to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we take a couple of weeks to re-listen to each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums and then we get together to reassess them. This time we're on to season two, episode 10, and we're looking at Self Portrait, which was released in June 1970. So uh, welcome back to season two, Rich. Good to chat to you again. We're on to the 70s. It's almost as if we've planned this, isn't it? And yeah, we're up to self-portrait. So as usual, what's your background with this record? Well, uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, welcome back. Very excited to get into into the 70s and uh, on to season two, obviously. I knew virtually nothing of this record other than its reputation before listening to it for the purposes of this. It has completely passed me by. I think that I was prejudiced against it by what I'd read about it and its kind of general reputation and without getting into it too much I was really rather pleasantly surprised by it so I've thoroughly enjoyed kind of discovering this as a massive double album what about you Mark what was your what was your kind of relationship with this very similar I would heard it once or twice and and only uh, I must confess in the the streaming Spotify era. I'd certainly never gone out and, and tracked down a physical copy of this album. And the same as you, precisely because of the reputation of it. When I was a, a younger man, counting my pennies and wondering which CD I was going to buy, this definitely wasn't one of the ones at the top of the top 1,000 albums of all time that I was going to be uh, rushing out and buying. So yeah, and I think that's, that's something we'll probably touch on as we go along isn't it um how much we're influenced by that perception of the canon when you come to discover an artist and um this album's absolutely at the bottom of the list isn't it when it comes to discovering bob dylan for the first time and thinking about what you want to get your hands on um so yeah very very little experience before listening to it this time and yeah um it's been an enjoyable experience yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think that the whole question about the canon is quite an important one that we can touch on slightly later, because I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about this other than Dylanologists. I just don't think it's even entered into conversations that you might have had with people about music or whatever. You talk about Bob Dylan, very, very few people ever say, oh, I, I love self-portrait. They'll talk about Desire, they'll talk about Blood on the Tracks, Highway 61, they'll talk about all of those classics. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it's all about self-portrait for me. No, absolutely. And, and I think this is where we are getting into new territory for us in this podcast, aren't we? Because all the records we've looked at up to now, including even his debut album, which is a young kid singing folk blues, essentially, all of those records come with this critical stamp of approval and or this, place, this absolutely central place in, in music history, if we want to be as pretentious as to, to talk about it in those terms. But this one, <laughs> this one doesn't. So um, I guess we should probably kick off just for completeness with talking about the reaction this record had. So a little bit of context just to, just to start with. Of course, he'd been recording in Nashville for some time. By the end of the 60s, uh, Nashville Skyline had come out. He'd had the massive hit with Lay, Lady, Lay. And then he was back in to Nashville, uh, recording some of the songs that ended up on this record in early 1969, Living the Blues, which is on this album. And I think it's the only genuine song, original song on here, isn't it, that he actually wrote, um, instrumentals and arrangements, of course. But apparently Living the Blues was pegged as his next single at one point, and it didn't quite turn out that way. But then he was off and did the Isle of Wight Festival in the summer of uh, 69. And of course, some of those tracks appear on this record. But then it wasn't until March 1970 that he was um, back in the studio in New York recording a lot of the rest of it. But that wasn't, that wasn't the end of the story, was it, even there? No, because, I mean, famously, there's a, a, an awful lot of this is 
just done by overdubs. I mean, he was in the studio for the initial kind of sessions, but then people have played many of these tracks as well who've who've said that, well, he was just kind of absent from the entire process. And uh, that kind of, I suppose, adds fuel to the fire of those people that have said that he wasn't really too into it. He He wasn't really too fussed or too kind of invested in this one. I don't know whether that's a little bit unfair, but it does strike me as a bit of an odd way to kind of make a record to kind of not be there for the for the process i mean especially considering as you've said it's hot on the heels i tried to think of a footballing metaphor i didn't really uh manage <laughs> i mean i suppose that first run of albums that we've talked about they're they're amazing i mean yes okay there are weaker and stronger ones but i mean i suppose it's it's the equivalent of a baseball player being at the plate and kind of smashing them all out of the park one after another and I think stretching this analogy slightly but I, I don't think he, he quite manages it and it's almost like he's not even swinging with quite such a dedication or devotion in in this instance yeah so that's sort of the other side of the story isn't it and then of course there's the reaction I mean do you want to do you want to kick off with the with with some of the some of the reaction then Mark because I mean it's pretty well documented isn't it <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose it's probably the most famous review. So I would say it is the most famous review of, of a Bob Dylan record, isn't it? And possibly one of the most famous reviews in in rock history. So the Rolling Stone review, where the first line was just, "What is this shit?" There's so many enjoyable things about going back and listening to this record, actually. But going back and reading that review was was one of the more enjoyable things. I do think it's actually quite a fair-minded review, um, <laughs> that, that first line notwithstanding. And you, you certainly get where he's coming from. But yeah, that set the tone, didn't it? This was the reaction. People might have had reservations about aspects of Nashville skyline, even John Wesley Harding. And of course, he'd, he'd really provoked people previously when he'd gone electric and when he moved away from protest. But this was the first time he'd had a proper honest-to-goodness panning by the critics. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're, we're probably, this review certainly is a product of a, it's a, a product of magazine style journalism. And as much as, as Rolling Stone, I suppose, was kind of kicking the the way forward into moving towards sound bites, And I suppose that was what was quoted. I, I, I would imagine the audience that read Folkways magazine and, and things like that in the early days that would talk about Bob Dylan albums would probably have been there for the long haul. They'd probably have read two, three page reviews and, and they'd have been quite balanced and, and probably fairly academic in tone. Now, I'm not saying that Rolling Stone magazine wasn't academic, but I mean, the line that everyone remembers is the, what is this shit? Whereas, of course, you've got, as you say, it's much, much more balanced than that. But I mean, I think we forget, certainly in the, in, in the current era, just how much kind of coverage and just how much circulation a magazine like Rolling Stone had. And it was like the sort of epitome of cool, wasn't it, really? And so it very much sort of uh, influenced the way that people would perceive things. And so I think that's quite interesting. But of course, we have to remember that it was still a very, very successful album and uh, and sold in bucket loads, didn't it? I mean, we mentioned a little while ago that this outsold Blonde on Blonde, I think two copies to one or something like that. So people people don't always go along with, with what they're told in magazines. No, and um, this is one of the interesting things about this record, isn't it? Because very quickly, Dylan himself was on the back foot with this, wasn't he? He said a lot of things about it in the years since. But one of the things that he said quite quickly afterwards, I think, was that it was a it was a deliberate ploy to get people off his back. 
and to to lose the the tag of the voice of a generation. I suppose related to that is the idea that it was a it was a joke or it was a an attempt to get one over the bootleggers by putting out his own leg. There's there's some of that in there, isn't there? But I I feel those sorts of comments are defence mechanisms deflecting away from the the criticism. It must have must have been quite hurtful. I mean, you know, if that's the first line of a review of your record, you're not going to be very happy about it, whoever you are. Yeah, and I mean, I think as well that. In 1968, of course, Rolling Stone famously nominated Bob Dylan for president. Okay, so he's he was there, right there as the spokesman of a generation. And I think it's interesting because those who are kind of behind the scenes when he went electric and did those sort of kind of had those sort of seismic shifts that had such huge knock-on effects they said that very quickly he kind of recovered his poise and he didn't seem that fussed by what other people seemed to think and yet you're absolutely right he he did go on the the back foot I mean there were even those that I think were very much on his side that almost suggested that actually this is satire this isn't like a (laughs) this isn't a a meaningful kind of uh, album in, in that kind of that kind of sense but I mean I, I don't think by by the same token I don't think anyone would really can really blame him we forget again how he was at the center he was in the eye of a hurricane wasn't he a media circus a media storm at, at the, this point in time he kind of ducked out of it by dint of the supposed uh, motorcycle accident but the strain and the stress and the pressure that that must have put on him and, and just the, the extent of expectation, far be it for, for me to try and empathise with his situation, but I think, I think I'd have probably wanted a break. I think I'd have probably <laughs> ducked out a, a version of Blue Moon or whatever just to try and get people off my back. I don't think we can blame him for that in that way. Yeah, definitely. And, and this is what's so interesting to me about this record because I think there are at least two, if not three, sort of competing strands about what he was up to, which all work. On the one hand, he had this massive success with Nashville Skyline. I think we've mentioned before that there was no template for what successful rock stars from the 60s were going to do. I mean, even people like Elvis, you know, they, they were washed up. They'd been in movies. You know, I think Elvis had already come back, hadn't he, and was now pretty much on the Vegas scene. So was that where Bob Dylan was going to be in two or three years? Nobody knew. Was he, was he just going to be out of the public eye altogether? So having been so successful with quite a middle-of-the-road record like Nashville Skyline, perhaps the next logical step was to do something like this and um, load up a load of country standards. And, um, and people seem to like it, as you say, it, it did sell very well. So perhaps that was the, the, the direction of travel. On the other hand, as you say, you know, we could see it as this arch trickster shedding another skin, confounding everybody and putting everyone off the scent. I think there's, a, there's another explanation in, in the middle of those two, actually, which is that had, you know, to what extent had his mojo gone? To what extent was he actually really flailing around looking for a new direction himself? Because if we look at his his output in this time, you know, from the end of John Wesley Harding onwards, he's not writing to the extent that he, he had been doing or that he would do again later in the decade. The songs he, are, he is writing, although certainly uh, uh, perfectly serviceable <laughs> by anybody else's standards, aren't, aren't up to his own standards. So was he was he thinking well actually you know i need to find a new route perhaps this is a way to explore you know the way i'm going to take this this forward i think all of those things are equally possible and we, we of course we don't know which one it was what was which one was at the forefront of his mind when he was he was producing this stuff it's interesting what you say about he wouldn't have known i mean obviously none of them knew what the future was going to hold but i think at the end of the 60s there was still very much a sense that rock and roll okay, this isn't a rock and roll record, but this sort of genre 
was a young man's game or a young woman's game. And, and of course, it was without precedent, wasn't it? There was no... I'm sure if, if you'd have told most of those um, stars of that era that they would have still been performing decades and decades later, certainly in Bob's case, I think they'd have looked at you like you were absolutely out of your mind. And so I think there's got to be an element of them thinking, yeah, we, we probably should try and monetize this while we can. And, and, and as you say, um, Nashville Skyline had been a big, big seller. So why not do a little bit more of the same and, and kind of crank out a bunch of, of, of sort of standards? I mean, you're right. The, the, the style of music on this, I mean, he'd been held up as the, as we said, the, the spokesperson of the, the generation. He'd been this kind of Arthur Rambo-like figure. And I think people look to him like, this is the guy that knows what's going on. This is the guy who can open the doors of perception almost. And he's not, he's not doing that on, on portrait. I mean, obviously, but... I think that, I mean, one of the critics, I forget who it was now, I think it was mentioned in Anthony Scaduto's book when he says that this is, if, if Bob Dylan is Arthur Rambo of the 1960s, and this is the bit when he's, he's kind of uh, run away to Abyssinia to run guns kind of thing and just checked out from the world of literature, the world of poetry. But I think it's also quite interesting that, of course, it's called self-portrait, but it's constructed almost entirely of covers i mean really and one of the uh, critics at the time it was robert christgau christgau i'm not sure how we say that but the journalist who who essentially said that it's it's quite interesting this idea of self um what he's doing is he's kind of looking i suppose at the what has influenced him and i think that this this in itself is quite a maverick step really isn't it because of course any artist steals from what's gone before every every artist is the is kind of the sum of everything that they've listened to and everything they've experienced. And Bob Dylan is, while not necessarily always wearing his heart on his sleeve with this, he's absolutely a product of that. And I think he's almost acknowledging it potentially. And, and rather than saying, hey, look at me, I'm this, this complete trailblazer, I'm this genius that's kind of reinvented everything. He's kind of looking back maybe to, to some of those sources. And I think that's interesting. And, 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 and I think that's one of the reasons I kind of like this. And of course, Mark Bolan of T-Rex fame also uh, wrote a letter, an open letter to the, I think, NME or Melody Maker maybe, and said, this is a classic. This is a great record. So, so evidently at the time, it wasn't just people thinking, oh, this isn't Blonde on Blonde and uh, I'm disappointed with it. There were, there were lots of fans of it. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose even then, you're getting to that, that first generational shift after the mid-60s. And I don't know what Mark Boland's history was. I don't know if he was someone who was, uh, was totally invested in Power 61 in 1965. But perhaps if you were coming to it a little bit later, you, you weren't weighted down with that baggage. You could approach things in a, in a fresh way. And certainly people have done, haven't they? I mean, you know, people have come to this record in, in future years and, and enjoyed it and reevaluated it. And of course, the big reevaluation happened a few years ago with the, the bootleg series, didn't it? Which strips away a lot of the, the overdubs, um, as well as having the usual additional tracks and alternate versions. I'm, I'm, I'm not so convinced as I think most people are, that that's necessarily always an improvement. I think that the, the overdubs had a charm to it, don't they? A very kitschy charm, but still something that's, uh, that's missing from those, those purer recordings. I agree. Um, I think it's it's very interesting with the whole bootleg series that some of them really do shed a brand new light on things, and there are kind of buried classics. I don't really get that from from the the reissues um, here. 
Although, to be honest, in Why Dylan Matters, that book by Richard Thomas, he talks about this idea of how it kind of, when, when you strip everything down, as, as you, you manage on that particular, um, on, on the reissues, uh, the bootleg series, sorry, this sort of world of the 18th and 19th century, he thinks it comes through in a more authentic fashion, which I kind of think is a fair point, this sort of world of bootlegging and hoboing and all of these kind of things that would have, of course, influenced Bob Dylan. It's that sort of frontier myth, the kind of the idea of the, the travelling minstrels and stuff like that. I mean... I think it's a very interesting undertaking to listen to those, to, to the bootleg series. I don't think it necessarily makes me like the record any more or any less, though. No, I agree with that. And it, it's almost like a completely different set, isn't it? Which I suppose is why it had the effect of making people reevaluate it so, so completely. But yeah, I agree with that. But shall we just move on from that? Because I think that's connected to um, the big question that we've got on this record. We, we abandoned having a big question, didn't we, some, some time ago? But uh, <laughs> I think we can bring it back here because we've got quite a straightforward one, haven't we? Which is just, is this any good? <laughs> and um, I think we can make a case in, in both directions, can't we? I don't know if you want to kick off, Rich. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can have a, for want of a better word, a kind of case for the prosecution and probably a, a case for the defence as well. I want to just, before we get into that, I'm going to, we obviously this is called Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. We try and make some some links with the immortal bard. I mean, it's it's less obvious, I will be honest, uh, on, on this particular <laughs> album. But I think that there's a kind of divide here. I mean, if if we think about Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's plays. There was a big divide, arguably, about Shakespeare being performed on the stage and then Shakespeare being read in um, in manuscript form. And there have been those that have asserted that in Elizabethan England, essentially, the plays were a lot more functional. They would be changed, they'd be altered, they would be used for different purposes. And depending on audience reaction, they'd be not necessarily rewritten, but there'd be ad-libs, etc., etc. And of course, the kind of genius of Shakespeare, I mean, it, doubtless it would have been there in the Globe Theatre at the time, for example, but certainly subsequent generations, having discovered this in sort of written terms, I've thought, wow, you know, he's a master, he's a genius. He, he obviously is and obviously was. But that's kind of grown in terms of reputation, obviously, when people can read this on the page, when people can see subsequent performances of it. And I suppose it's a, there's a little bit of a flip side of this with Bob Dylan, potentially with this record, in as much as if we imagine that the printed version of a Shakespearean play, well, the, the equivalent of that is like the studio album, I suppose, of Bob Dylan. And it's almost like he's flipped it. He's doing it in reverse. It's not like this is all like being madly road tested and it's being kind of uh, chopped and changed and perfected on the road. Instead, you've got this, I suppose, arguably a little bit ramshackle album that's been that's been released and people are just expecting it almost to be an instant classic. It hasn't had that time to kind of grow and alter and change and then people it's almost like people's perception of it is fixed whereas I think with Shakespeare people would have seen it in the theatres they'd have made one judgment people would then subsequently have read the manuscript version of it and appreciated it in different ways I think that it's it's almost had a kind of set perception of the self-portrait which is maybe a little bit unfair but it's it's very much therefore a product of the modern world that's about as far as I can go with this without kind of going completely down a rabbit warren, but hopefully that makes some kind of sense. That's kind of my view, albeit perhaps not particularly well explained here. And I think just the fact, as we've said before, all of his preceding albums, to a lesser or greater extent, have been kind of considered 
almost instant classics. Whereas this one, he puts it out and that's it. It's kind of frozen in time almost. It's taken quite a long while for us to sort of re-evaluate it. Hopefully that makes some kind of sense, but I'm going to hand back over to you at the risk of just uh, <laughs> going around in circles. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a, a, a strange thing, isn't it? The, this kind of lightning in a bottle effect that you get on recorded records, uh, uh, recorded records, <laughs> recorded music. And we, we talked about it a little bit with Highway 61, didn't we? Where I think that's the absolute perfect example of you've got this group of musicians you got this uh, genius band leader with a vision and somehow they've captured it. And perhaps, well, as we know, as we've talked about with the alternate takes of like a Rolling Stone, you know, if, if something had just been ever so slightly different, we'd never have had that version that's, that's captured. But that way of recording, which is, which is what Dylan does throughout his career, is very much more related to that, that kind of performance, isn't it, that you're talking about and the way, that, the way that he's still on the road, the way that he still tries to create this thing every night. And he does it with varying degrees of success, of course. And that's, that's so different from what records have become by this time. I mean, this is post-Pepper, it's post-Pet Sounds. We're very soon going to be into the um, prog rock era and you know we're into the stage of you know the bass sound is going to be perfectly defined over a period of weeks and then it's going to be we're going to take a hundred takes and take the best version of each note there's very little of that in Dylan actually isn't there and this record certainly has none of that whatsoever so I don't know it's that it's that kind of tension between what we have fixed as the record and what we know music to be, this kind of organic experience that, that happens in a certain way and Dylan records always just ride that cusp between the two don't they we are, we are left with what we think is the definitive version that we we go back and listen to but there's always something more something beyond that he's working on and continues to work on now as he's gone past eight yes and i think the fact that he's clearly such a genius he's clearly thinking on about three or four different planes to everyone else means that this is he's always thinking kind of three steps ahead but i'd argue as well that his best records are performances, aren't they? They're, they are performances where essentially you're recording the room, you're recording the band and him in the studio and you're getting what you've got at that point in time. I mean, when it comes to Desire, it's been very famously uh, documented, but they really did capture lightning in a bottle and they went back and tried to subsequently alter bits and pieces and failed. Whereas this, you haven't got that because of the very fact that so much of it is overdubbed. Is you're not recording the room, are you? You're recording a bunch of session musicians who are approximating, I suppose, what they've been told to record or indeed just kind of interpreting it as it kind of goes along. And so I think that perhaps Perhaps that probably accounts for a bit of the, the sort of absence of energy and, and also I think the, the sort of disparate nature of some of these tracks as well. I know it was recorded over a long time, but also I think the, the, the sort of immediacy of something like Highway 61, you've just got this really hot band that are in a studio, they're all kind of quite telepathically linked together you definitely don't get that here. And, and I think that that's probably a case for the prosecution. Yes, I agree. I mean, the first thing you've got to say about this album, even if you're, um, you're enjoying it, is that it's, it's a double album of very variable quality. And one of the things that makes it so variable, and let's be fair, some of the time very poor quality, is that you have got this kind of haphazard, sometimes slipshod playing. It's that business that people have said subsequently that they thought they were playing on rehearsal takes or they thought they were just jamming. No one really expected they were putting together a record um, a lot of the time. But Dylan himself, I think, his, his performance is in that space a lot of the time. There's many tracks where you, you wonder, is his heart in it? Is he committed to it? And then it's, of course, it's smothered in overdubs, which I think sometimes 
makes it quite charming. But other times it's just kind of a, a lick of paint to try and rescue what's quite a, an amateurish performance almost, really. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it wasn't Bob Dylan, would it have been as well received? It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, some of the overdubs I really like. I really like the strings. I mean, they're very the sort of lush... Glen Campbell strings that are on this I think they sound really good they sort of remind me when I listen to them of the Bruce Springsteen album Western Stars so I don't know maybe they were kind of half a century before their time they really kind of work in that context I mean in particular the ones on um, All the Tired Horses which is, is a weird opening kind of track All the Tired Horses would work perfectly on the movie that Springsteen made of Western Stars and those those strings are, are just they really work in terms of overdubs. While we're on that, actually, Andrew Muir, the writer and critic, talked about that opening couplet in his book, uh, "The True Performing of It," and he talks about how if riding is taken as being writing and horse is taken as maybe referring to heroin, then obviously it puts a huge <laughs> slant on things. Now we're never really going to know with this, but I mean, I think there there have been those people who sort of suggested that. Was Dylan's kind of apathy here chemically induced, as it were? Was it that he was kind of fighting his demons elsewhere and wasn't um, 100% interested in this? And in which case, it, it might well account for the kind of removed um, attitude that he has towards to, towards some of the uh, the recording here, certainly. And probably the fact that a lot of these overdubs seem a bit incoherent. You've got these lush, gorgeous strings on some of the songs. And then you've got other stuff that's overdubbed that just doesn't really necessarily sound like it fits or works at all but there you go back to you mate yeah and, and i think that that's a really good point the um the all the tired horses if you think of it with that interpretation it really makes a lot more sense to start off with that track as the first track on an album called self-portrait and i don't even think you need the um chemical illusion to, to make it work either because it could just be about this kind of this torpor this lack of inspiration that he appears to be going through but then again it could be just something he fancied putting on so you know we, we, we really have no idea do we but it does give you that perspective when you, you think about the structure of the album in that way we're just going to pause now for a moment and here's one of our favorite podcasts music Everyone loves it. But who listens to the lyrics? We do. She doesn't live in a shantytown. She lives in capital S shantytown. <laughs> yeah. You put patches from old shantytown on a resume, <laughs> you're not getting that job. You know what I mean? On the Story Song Podcast, we break down the lyrics you've heard a thousand times. Go so, to Barnes & Noble, 20 bucks, farming for dummies. Right. Chapter one, don't farm at night. Chapter two, don't farm in the winter. <laughs> yeah. The index is just like blizzard. See also, don't. We also look at the history of the song. So the monster mash is on the R&B jazz. <laughs> Clearly it should be on the monster chart. <laughs> oh, it was, it was number one on the monster chart. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The Story Song Podcast. Find it wherever you download podcasts. Going back to... Um, putting the boot in. I think the other thing that, that really stands out on this album is that a lot of the songs are sort of almost like jokes or parodies, aren't they? And, and that's been sort of the defense that he was, he was deliberately setting out that it's a parody people. But if he was, it just doesn't work. I mean, the, the example par excellence of that being uh, the boxer. I do think it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, don't get me wrong. Particularly, there's a, there's a moment, I think it's in the third chorus, where he's doing the lie lies and the... Uh, let's call it the harmony vocal comes in off the beat with a light and it cracks me up every time but no one's going to convince me that this is anything other than a, an execrable 
<laughs> recording. He is he is harmonising with himself, isn't he? On this, is that is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what's going on. Because I mean, he, surely he yeah, because I surely he could have remembered. Therefore, the phrasing that he used. The other thing about Bob Dylan as making it a, a, a joke is that he is a genuinely funny person. I mean, he's, he's, when we look back at those talking blues and the satirical stuff that he was doing early in his career, he knows how to tell a joke to a room of people and to have them in stitches. And we've also mentioned this kind of quite Chaplin-esque quality, this really charming sort of thing. But I think those things are lost, really. And if it's a joke... I don't know, it's just, there's not many people in on it and I don't think many people would have read it as, or, or listened to it in the first instance as being, as being like a joke when they, when they, when they first listened to this on, on, on release. And so, yeah, the jokes fall flat. The overdubs, I mean, again, we're making a, a case for the prosecution here rather than being overly uh, damning of our, of our own kind of, <laughs> off our own backs. But the jokes fall flat. Lack of cohesion and, and structure. I mean, the throwing in of live tracks, which you know they're, they're listenable, but they're not always wonderful, are they? And then the the rather questionable overdubs at times. So I think that's quite a lot of ammunition. Do you want to flip sides and, and talk about the defence? I mean, what are you reckoning, Mark? Yeah, well, I think feel, feel a lot happier talking about the defence, of course. And the, the key thing is, I think that a lot of this stuff that we've talked about is linked to this idea of us as fans and others as critics having some kind of ownership of Bob Dylan or of, of, of rock music or the counterculture more generally. And I think now, at this distance, we can sort of recognise how ridiculous that, that is. But it's still, it's, still, it's still a kind of natural reaction in a way, isn't it? If you're a fan of something, you feel like you've got a little piece of it somehow, no matter how irrational you can realise that is. And I think if you, if you take that away, if you sort of think, well, actually, I'm just going to listen to this as a piece of music and I'm not going to care whether this is the political statement I think Bob Dylan should have made at this moment, or whether it's the artistic development that should have happened after Nashville Skyline, strip all that away. There is a lot to like here. Numerous songs are just very enjoyable. I mean, I, I've got a little, a little list of my own, uh, my own favourites. Obviously, Copper Kettle we'll talk about. Belle Isle, I think, works wonderfully well and I think that was the one that Mark Bolan mentioned in his Melody Maker letter as, as one that, that stood out for him but I really enjoyed stuff like Days of 49 as well um, I think that just works really nicely and so you go through it there's, there's weaker tracks but there's plenty to like and I think that shouldn't be forgotten there's a lot here that's very very enjoyable yeah I think I agree with you on that and I think going back to what you just said there about the the idea of ownership, I think that's very important because it is ridiculous, but it's kind of like, it's almost like following a football team, isn't it? Like you do feel like you've got ownership and you like it when they win and you get a bit disappointed, a bit depressed when they, when they lose. Certainly, I think as a younger person, you're affected far more by this. And I think if you're a if you're a person who's kind of grown up with Bob Dylan in the sixties kind of thing, you're you're following him. That people followed music in different ways. Then it's like, yeah, this is my guy. This is I'm I'm going to buy all his records and I'm going to love them. And then this is that kind of disappointment, isn't it? This it's hit hit hit, and then all of a sudden, well, this feels a bit like a miss to me. And of course, as you say, when we set all of this in context, we know that there is a resurgence, and then he dies away again, and then there's like a a late blooming and then there's the, it, it's a, a very very long career and so this is kind of a minor moment in it I suppose arguably but of course you don't know that at the time in 1970 when you're listening to this you're thinking well this this might be it now and um, 
he might be off to Vegas or he might be kind of retiring because I mean why would you be, be able to see see any further than that and so I think that's that's really important. I mean, going back to the the successes. I mean, your days of forty nine. I I I agree. I like that, and I I really like the. I think it's Charlie McCoy. It's bound to be Charlie McCoy. He's playing the. It's the bass harmonica. I did put this one out on Twitter. Michael Simon Simmons on Twitter. Uh, thank you for your input. Obviously, he was uh, saying that he also thought it was a bass harmonica, very similar to the one, of course, that McCoy would have played because it's the same sound on um, the Simon and Garfunkel version of The Boxer. And I think that works really, really well. I mean, Copper Kettle is beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful. And I mean, it's this thing. I think at certain times on this record, you think, yeah, do you know what? He's committed here. This is a committed performance. It's all about the performance. And when he when he's believing in it, it, great stuff happens. I mean, similarly, I think Early Morning Rain, the uh, the Gordon Lightfoot song, that's really nice. It's it's very tender. It's it's done in a very respectful way. He was a Gordon Lightfoot fan, obviously, and so I, that's a highlight for me. Copper Kettle is, and thank you to Andrew Muir who kind of uh, sort of suggested this. Actually, I know we've mentioned him a couple of times on this occasion, but. Um, he thought this might be a good addition to our People Who Think Dylan Can't Sing Should Hear This uh, series of uh, of songs. I think Copper Kettle is, is, is great, isn't it? I mean, we're trying to endlessly fight this corner of, uh, yes, Bob Dylan can sing and he can sing amazingly. Yes, on Copper Kettle, he definitely can. There are a few moments on this uh, record where I think uh, you'd probably be on slightly shakier ground if you were trying to kind of make that sort of argument. I mean... Uh, Blue Moon is is not Pavarotti. Let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, but but there we go. Back to you, mate. What are you thinking? I, I think that's the thing. Did anyone ever need Bob Dylan sing Blue Moon? Possibly not. I mean, this stuff makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? After the um, the early nineties folk records and the, the American Songbook stuff we've had in the last decade. Um, but it must have been very weird at the time. One of the things Dylan said about this, or supposedly said about this in later years, was something like, um, if Elvis had made this record, no one would have batted an eyelid. I think that's pretty revealing because A, it's true, uh, but B, it also plays into what you were saying before. Um, would somebody who was you know, a really committed Bob Dylan fan and, and you know, was thinking of this man as being his guy would they hearing this have thought oh this is now elvis post army this is this is what we've got from here on in and that of course is another layer of interpretation that, that rests on top of the album and and, and influences your, your perception of it but yeah i agree going back to um to copper kettle yeah the the, the vocal's incredible isn't it but the other thing about it is it, it's that sense of him being on the frontier again and there is that thread through it, all the tired horses, days of '49, copper kettle, and some of the the country standards as well. Although they're not quite in the same vein, I think they are more convincing performances than a lot of the stuff on Nashville Skyline. Actually, I mean, even take me as I am. I think I believe him more as a kind of Hank Williams wannabe on that than I do on some of his crooning on Nashville Skyline. I am inclined to agree with you there. I mean, a lot of it again goes back to that point I made earlier about seemingly how much he believes in it or how much he actually likes the material that he's singing. I mean, the Elvis comparison is a difficult one because I loved it, Bob Dylan's uh, singing. As I make no, no bones about that. But I will also be one of the first to admit that his voice has not got the versatility of other voices, I don't think. And again, I'm not damning him here, but I think he has to be quite careful of the stuff that he, the material that he's selecting to sing. And whereas Elvis, you've got that huge 
instantly identifiable kind of enormous voice that just he can kind of sing anything really and it will always have that kind of Elvis treatment I think perhaps and you can shoot me down for saying this but I think perhaps Bob Dylan's voice suits some material more more than others uh, other songs and at this stage in his career because of course his voice kept and has kept changing hasn't it I don't think at this stage in his career it probably suits some of the material in the way that it subsequently uh, kind of changed. I mean, I, th- I also think this is one of these things where we should, there should be no surprise really that he went down the American songbook kind of route because these are, this is effectively what he's doing uh, at this point in time. I just don't think that he sounds enough like Tom Waits to kind of carry it off in that sort of barroom way at this fairly young age compared with when he's in his kind of late 60s, 70s, when he brings a whole different kind of character and maturity to things. But he's right, he's right. If Elvis had put this out, everyone would have said, oh, isn't this wonderful? But I also think that had Elvis done it, it would have had strings on everything, massive kind of orchestras playing. It would have been hugely overproduced probably. Whereas I think it's it's just the patchy kind of nature of it, isn't it, of this, of this record that, that probably doesn't do his voice justice in all cases. I agree with that. The other thing, though, is I think even even within that context, we're in this 6970 Nashville skyline crooner voice. Even within that context, there's some weak performances on there. And I think the worst one, actually, for me, it, it probably isn't even technically the worst one, is the performance on Like a Rolling Stone, where he, he, he essentially butchers the song, misplaces lyrics. But also worse than that, the total lack of apparent conviction and this bizarre kind of crooning affectation just well let's just say it doesn't work and there's a there's a lovely bit in the the real marcus rolling stone review isn't there where he talks about this and they supposedly the people listening to the album for purposes of the review pause it and go and put on highway 61 just 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 to remind themselves that actually there was something there with this song originally and uh, and actually i did do that myself the other day and i put on the uh, free trade hall performance of it and uh, it's unfair to compare of course it's unfair you know it's the same musicians but at that time they were absolutely on it after being after being drilled through that world tour all the way up to that point and being energized by this atmosphere and of course there's, not, there's none of that um, even the rehearsal wasn't there um, prior to the Isle of Wight so it's totally unfair but nevertheless you can't help but make the comparison and it's a it's a terrible pale shadow isn't it of, uh, of the versions we've heard before and that just made me wonder but why why then would he put it on there was it just that he thought well we're, we're putting some live tracks on this is one of my big hits this will help shift some more units or was he just trying to undermine people's expectations it's 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 impossible to know and you can certainly play it play it both ways that's right i mean we will of course never know i think that the it's probably worth remembering how bad a lot of the stage sound and sound systems were for certainly for big shows like the isle of Wight, because you listen to it and it kind of sounds like a band that are playing through amplifiers and probably haven't got very good monitoring for starters can't really hear each other very well but going back to what you said that begs the question of why the hell would you put it on a on a on a double album because then it becomes unfortunately then it becomes filler doesn't it it becomes like it, or it feels like oh well just just whack that on that'd be all right that'll take up three minutes or whatever and it's not a great performance you're right and they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been very well rehearsed they wouldn't have been very well drilled and so they wouldn't have had that kind of dynamic as a band really and it just seems surely he could have shed the uh, 
If he was just wanting to shed this spokesperson of a generation thing, he could have just not sort of said anything, not put anything out for a little while. I mean, that, that would be a, a sure way of doing it. Whereas to try and, I, I don't know, it just seems almost like he's trying too hard to sort of sabotage himself, but not doing it in a very direct way. So I don't, I, I'm very confused by this this album. I, I don't know whether I buy the idea that he is just going, he's, he's trying to kind of undermine himself. And I wonder what he thought of it when he kind of sat down. I mean, he must have listened to it at some point when it all be mixed and mastered and ready to, to be released. And he must have given it the green light and thought, yeah, do you know what? I, I think this is this is doing me justice. I think it's going to be great. People are going to like it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that the, as we've kind of alluded to, the development of this idea of it being a joke or a satirical thing, I think that's a self-defense mechanism. I think that's what he's gone on to subsequently, thinking, wow, people really hate this. Let me uh, kind of take the heat out of it by pretending that I mean it all along. But does any, I mean, that's that's a hell of a bold step, isn't it, for a, for an artist to think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that's not outrageously bad, but just kind of not very good. Like just sort of mid, like beige, I suppose, is the colour that I would go with a lot of the uh, tracks on this. <laughs> just kind of somewhere in the middle of not really being anything. And, and I, I sound like I'm really down on it now. And I enjoyed listening to this. I enjoyed it as an album. I thought it was, it, it, when it's good, it's very good. But it's, it, it's a double album that should have been a single album, in my, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I'd go with that. There's that fantastic quote, isn't there? What is it? Is it Dylan that said something like they had to make it a double album because what was it? Oh God, um, it's not the bit—the idea that it was they wanted another blonde on blonde. Is it? Am I am I getting am I mixing this one up? I'm forgetting now. No, it's this. What is it? This one where um, it was like you know um, it wouldn't have held up as a single album. It would have been bad if you're going to put a lot of crap on it. You might as well load it up. <laughs> was that Dylan who said that? I can't I, I, do you know what? It, it, I mean, that very much sounds like his sort of revisionist view of this album that he came out with not very long afterwards, saying that actually, yeah, the joke's on you for taking it seriously in the first place, kind of thing. Whereas, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced. I'm not sure that the prosecution is going to rest one way or the other with this one. I think the jury's very much going to be out, but. At this juncture, we normally kind of go into last thoughts. Yeah, well, I think as we've said a few times, it has been a really enjoyable experience to spend time with this record over the last few weeks. It got me thinking it's kind of like a little bit like The Emperor's New Clothes in reverse with this album. You know, it's got such a bad reputation, the more recent uh, re-evaluation notwithstanding, that you can't help come to it and, and sort of be surprised. Oh, it's not totally shit. I quite like it. Um, and uh, as we said, I think it's, it's just so interesting, isn't it, with all these things, how much public opinion, critical opinion, the sort of personal history you have with the record, what's going on with your life when you come to it for the first time, how all these things layer on top of the record. And actually, it's so hard to approach it with fresh ears. So I think just as with Nashville Skyline, I was quite down on it because I came to it with the, the expectation it was going to be this brilliant country rock record of memory. And I didn't quite feel it lived up to that. With Self-Portrait, I've come to it thinking it's going to be absolutely terrible. And I've ended up quite enjoying it. Now, I think objectively, Nashville Skyline is a better record than Self-Portrait. But I probably have a softer spot in my heart for Self-Portrait than I do for Nashville Skyline, which is totally irrational. But there we go. But that said, I'm still not convinced it is really any good. There's too much poor stuff on here for that. 
it's enjoyable and I'm looking forward to new morning. That's probably where I am right now. Yeah, I totally echo looking forward to new morning. I think that's going to be very interesting. My last thoughts on this, I really enjoyed discovering it. I pretty much share your opinion. I mean, the, the, the thing that I said previously was that I was almost of the mind that Nashville Skyline might have been put out as a joke, but it backfired because everyone bought it and thought it was great as a kind of convincing country record. I wonder if this was kind of also, in essence, if, if this is considered a joke, well, this one also backfired, but rather than people loving it, there was a very, very mixed opinion. And there was, of course, the very famous uh, Rolling Stone review, which completely damned it. I think it's very listenable, but I do think that this is one of the few albums so far one of the few Bob Dylan albums that I do find myself thinking, right, I'm going to skip ahead. I don't want to listen to this particular song repeatedly. And I think that that, that kind of takes it away. It, it definitely puts it down into a lower division than pretty much all of the albums of Bob Dylan's that we've uh, listened to so far. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. When push comes to shove, it doesn't stack up against what's gone before, even the worst of what's gone before. And that's why it got the reception it got at the time and that as i said at the start that review of rolling stone is 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 still pretty fair i think but that shouldn't blind us to the fact that it's still a bob dylan record still pretty listenable and it's okay is that good enough i guess that's up to the listener to decide isn't it and on that note we will say thank you very much indeed for joining us and listening to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. Please do post any questions that you would like us to discuss on Twitter. You can find us. We are at Dylan American. Please do subscribe to the podcast and we will look forward to seeing you next time for New Morning. Thank you. Thank you.